0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode.
1: Book 3, Chapter 5, The Messiah Rejected Matthew 26, verses 57-68 to In this section, our first step must be, quickly, and therefore briefly, to trace the process of rejection as it is revealed by Matthew. Then we shall seek to retrace our steps and look at some evidence more incisively. So let us begin at the beginning, and notice where the first sign of rejection emerges, according to Matthew. It is in chapter 9, and through an incident we have already considered. Verses 2-8, to eight, The Case of the Paralyzed Man The king was a man who always measured the physical in terms of the spiritual. He heard the birds sing and said, Your heavenly father feeds them. He saw the flowers on the hillside and said, God clothes them. And handled a common loaf of bread and said, There is a bread which men may eat and live forever. So it is with the paralyzed man. He saw a connection between the physical and the spiritual. The man was burdened by his sin. Christ knew it, and dealt with the evil out of which the man's limitation had come. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Chapter 9, verse 2. The measurement of the scribes was, This man blasphemeth. Verse 3. Notice carefully their estimate of Jesus, a blaspheming rabbi. We shall have need to return to it before long. This was the first rupture with the leaders, according to Matthew. Then, in verses 10-15, to we have the Pharisees objecting that Jesus was consorting with publicans and sinners. And the reply of the Messiah with unanswerable logic? They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. Verse 12 But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 13 they could not have liked it, and must have been nursing resentment. In verses 32-34, to 34, Jesus heals a dumb man possessed of a devil. The Pharisees' reaction is, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. Verse 34 Diabolism is a very serious charge. Notice it at this stage. It marks the development of the estrangement. Growing opposition Now go to Matthew 12 and verses 1-8. to 8. Here we have the case of the disciples rubbing out the corn in their hands on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees objected that they were doing what was not lawful on the Sabbath day. The reply of the king must have been particularly galling for them. He said, Have you not read what David did? Verse 3. And, Have you not read in the law? Verse 5. Or, If ye had known what this meaneth, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Verse 7. To be rebuffed by an appeal to the very law in which they were the experts must have touched their professional pride. Then the final thrust. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Verse 8. Then in verses 9 to 14, we have the case of the man with the withered hand. Jesus cured him in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He argued that they would save a sheep on the Sabbath. Why is it wrong to save a man? They could not get away from the fact that the action of Jesus was justified by their own behavior on the Sabbath. Notice the outcome. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Verse 14. Now the opposition is taking a much more sinister direction. They have resolved to destroy him. Continuing in verses 22-30, to Jesus casts out the demons of blindness and dumbness. The Pharisees heard it and said that it was the work of Beelzebub, the prince of devils. In verses 38 to 42, certain of the scribes and Pharisees seek a sign from the king. His reply indicts them squarely. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Verse 39. The word adulterous must have upset them deeply for they knew that it was used in the Old Testament to describe the very lowest condition of the people of God when they departed from their high calling into the very worst condition of degradation and infidelity, a spiritual harlot. So, as they had refused every other sign, they must wait for the sign of Jonah, a man who had come out of death to proclaim the word of God. We move on to chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Here, a special deputation of Pharisees and scribes come from Jerusalem to inquire, so it seemed, about the teaching of the man from Nazareth. They were concerned about washing hands. His reply revealed that they ought to be concerned about how they selfishly shattered the second commandment, honor thy father and mother. It was a conflict between tradition and truth. The Pharisees were offended. That was the disciples' estimate, to put it mildly. See verse 12. The metropolitan deputation must have been livid. He called them hypocrites and used Isaiah to prove their worship was false. Chapter 16, verses 1-5 to This time the Pharisees join with the Sadducees to tempt Jesus. He says they can discern the signs of the weather, but are blind to the signs of the times. He calls them hypocrites and left them. Chapter 21, verses 12-17 to In this passage, Matthew reveals that the king moves to Jerusalem to enter the city as king in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Then he moves to the temple of God and clears out the forces of pollution and corruption. The blind and the lame were healed. The children proclaimed the Messiah, and the priests were sore displeased. That means they were angry. Angry men ready to plan mischief. Chapter 21, verses 23-27 to The chief priests and the elders challenged the authority of the king. He counters by asking them to declare themselves concerning John the Baptist. Verse 25 It was a telling question, because if they admitted that John was true and from God, they had to admit that so was Jesus. For John was Jesus' herald, and testified of his authority. To accept one made it illogical to reject the other. When John ceased, Jesus took up the ministry. They saw the dilemma and gave a dishonest answer. We know not at admission of their willful blindness. What a shambles, to be forced to admit ignorance about something of which they should have been certain. Can you imagine their inward wrath? Chapter 23 is perhaps best known of all. It is a terrible indictment by the Messiah of the religious leaders of Israel. He calls them blind guides, fools, hypocrites, whited sepulchres, murderers of the prophets with blood on their hands, serpents and offspring of vipers. The terrible words were spoken in deep sorrow. For the passage ends with the king weeping over the city, which had been brought to reject him by the very forces which he had been compelled to condemn, with such telling and awful damnation. Woe unto you, he said. His voice is choked with tears. Woe unto you. The outcome of this final and awful indictment of the rulers is discovered in chapter 26. And it came to pass... When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Verses 1-5 The developing campaign of hatred has come to its climax. They resolve to kill him. For them there is no other remedy. So the Messiah is rejected by the people of God. There are many questions which emerge from the consideration of how the Messiah was rejected, but there is one which I feel we ought to pursue more intensely in the interests of seeking to understand better Matthew's Messiah. The Culpability of the Jewish Leaders Why were the Pharisees, scribes, priests, rulers, so blameworthy and deserving of such awful condemnation? In pursuit of that, I want to bring you back to one of the incidents we have recollected already, the case of the man with the withered arm in chapter 12. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and, behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then said he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him. How they might destroy him. Verses 9-14. to 14. Let us read the details carefully. This is a crucial incident because the outcome was a clear resolution on the part of the Pharisees to destroy Jesus. I now use the right which I reserved in the beginning to look occasionally at another gospel in order to illuminate the record of Matthew. I bring you into to Mark chapter 3. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. Verses 1 and 2. Notice the phrase, and they watched him. It says they were watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. It is probable that this paralyzed man was a regular visitor to the synagogue. Perhaps he had been coming for years. Evidently, they knew that he would be there. He was there every Sabbath. They knew that the man of Nazareth was coming too. Indeed, he was being set up on this particular Sabbath. It was all arranged. They wanted to trap him so that they might accuse him. That was the master plan. I dare say that the man had been guided to a place where he would, in the synagogue, come face to face with the Nazarene in such a way as to make his disability evident. What is so interesting here is the thinking of the Pharisees. They were saying to themselves, If only we can get this disabled man into the presence of the man from Nazareth. It is almost certain that he will want to help him, that he will attempt a cure. Then we shall have him. Mark it well. The success of their plan rested on their acknowledgement that if this man from Nazareth was confronted with a sick man, he would not be able to restrain his compassion, even though it was the Sabbath day. They depended upon Jesus being true to his calling. Of all the people in the synagogue, they knew that Jesus was the most dependable when it came to helping the undone. So they were saying, he will never be able to resist it. The trap is set. Is it not interesting what an accurate estimate they had formed of the Messiah? What a compliment they paid him without doing it. We know what happened. He challenged them and said, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil? They said nothing. They did not wish to discourage him, nor did they want to be accused of encouraging him. The true answer would have been, it is right to do good. It is wrong to do evil, but they could bear no such testimony. He said to the poor broken man, stand forth. And then with one superb command, he gave him ability for his disability. The man surrendered and the power was communicated. Matthew says that the hand was restored whole like the other. The man must have been delighted. All the years of paralysis ended in one blinding flash on the Sabbath day, the day God made for man. Jesus must have been well pleased. He had been able to do the work of God on God's day, to turn weakness into power, sorrow into joy, uselessness into usefulness. The Pharisees were glad too, but for different reasons. Their hope of the Nazarene had been fulfilled. He had proved true to their estimate of him. They depended upon him to heal, and he had healed and restored. Their gladness was centered in the possibility of doing harm to the cause of the man who claimed to be Messiah. Their joy was in the chance to accuse and destroy. They were glad that he had violated the Sabbath as they saw it. They would have been disappointed if he had conformed to their view of doing right. It shows that they were not really interested in the upholding of right. They were not really concerned that God's law should be respected. Their overriding desire was that this man should be in a position where he could be indicted and destroyed. They were glad that Measured by their measurement, evil had been done. They were not glad for the paralyzed man. That he had been cured was to them of no consequence. That half a lifetime of withered paralysis had been ended gave them no thankful satisfaction. No wonder Jesus was angry. Mark says he was angry and more. He says he was grieved for the hardness of their heart. It was the same with the man who had been healed at the pool of Bethesda. They complained that he had carried his bed on the Sabbath. They were not concerned that 38 winter years of hopelessness had been ended. So here is the point. The real blameworthiness and the real culpability of these men lies in the fact that they recognized that this man from Nazareth was doing good and was saving the broken and the bruised and the bereft. They depended upon his compassion. They recognized his sympathetic understanding for those in need. They admitted his love, mercy, and kindness. And yet in the face of that, they condemned him. In the presence of the light, they preferred darkness. Even at last, when he was brought to the cross by their conspiracy, as they taunted him, they said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Even in their attempt to mock him, they had to concede that he had saved others. This, I submit, was their awful culpability. It is fixed in one word in the record of Mark chapter 3, the hardness of their hearts. Hardened hearts result in deceived hearts. In the presence of the best, the noblest, the purest, and the most compassionate exhibition of divine life, they hardened their hearts. They admitted it, depended upon it, and rejected it. This is their awful indictment. This was their terrible sin. They loved darkness rather than light. And it was intensified by the fact that their high principles could be violated so easily when it suited them. This is the very point that Jesus made. What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will not lay hold on it and lift it out? Matthew 12, verse 11. Notice the words carefully. What man shall have one sheep? The argument is that you rescue it because it's yours. You are the owner, and because of that you say that nothing should stand in the way of recovering your own in danger. Even on the Sabbath. Now, notice the implication. How much then is a man better than a sheep? He is saying that what you do for your sheep on the Sabbath, God does for his men on the Sabbath. What you recover for yourself, he recovers for himself, Sabbath or not. This is part of their blameworthiness. They were willing to deny God what they insisted on for themselves. The answer to their hardness and their selfishness and their hypocrisy is in one command ringing through the synagogue. Stretch forth thine hand. The Final Rejection Let us come now to the final incidents in the long process of the Messiah rejected. When you think of Western constitutions which give protection and justice to all those who are accused before the law, there is perhaps in your mind one word which expresses comprehensively the force of the provisions. That word is equity. When we turn to the case of the man of Nazareth and the methods used by his accusers, there is one word which comes to mind to express the process by which he was tried. That word is perversion. Brother Melva in his book A Life of Jesus, proves that everything about the trial of the Messiah was illegal. The arrest, the trial itself, the cross-questioning, the evidence, were all illegal. The provisions to ensure justice for the Jew, accused before the court, were all violated. The Roman trial was more regulated. Under Roman law, there had to be an accusation, then a cross-examination, then a defense, after which the verdict was given. In the trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, the witnesses made a bad showing. Caiaphas must have been on edge. He says to Jesus, "Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Then, regaining his composure, he finds a way out of his dilemma. Never mind that it is contrary to the law. In a loud voice he says, I adjure thee, by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. You know the reply of the king, Thou hast said, which means, Thou hast said the truth. Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas rent his clothes an outer sign of inner shock and sadness. Of course, there was no real sadness, only a great deal of real satisfaction. He said, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold now, ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? The answer was a foregone conclusion. He is guilty of death. The trial was over. The important thing to Mark is that the accusation was blasphemy, and for this the accused was condemned. What we have to do is to look a little more incisively at the forces behind the accusation to see what really was driving this man, the high priest, to indict and condemn the man of Nazareth, who we know was the best and the kindest of men that had ever lived. Remember something they said in the council? What do we? For this man do with many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. John eleven verses forty seven and forty eight Then, from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death verse fifty three Here we have touched the reality. they concluded that if his teaching progressed, their reign was over. His teaching made religion a thing of the heart, not of rabbinical learning. His teaching brought the sinner close to God, and the broken spirit within reach of the healing compassion of divine love. This made nonsense of that ritual regularity which erected a barrier between the sinner and the love of God. Their condemnation of him was spoken in these words. This man receiveth sinners, and eats with them Luke 15, verse 2. Mark it well, then, the real ground of opposition to Jesus was hatred of the light. But we have seen that it was not the reason they put forward. Eventually it will be public zeal, patriotism, loyalty. Of course, this is nothing new, but in this case it was intensified. What could be purer and more godly than to root out an influence which blasphemed the holy name of God? What more noble calling than to protect the nation and save the inheritance? It sounds splendid, but we know it was all hollow and superficial and empty. The real accusation was that this man was a danger as they sought to their position, their influence and their power. The purpose is the destruction of the man of Nazareth, but Caiaphas justified it for the loftiest of reasons. It is expedient, he said, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. A great truth spoken in the words of a shameful falsehood. Let us pass on to the Roman part of the trial. They took their prisoner to Pilate early in the morning. Early though it was, he was up and about, probably because he knew they were coming. It is to me fascinating to try to estimate human nature as it is revealed to us in characters exposed in the word of God. I do not propose to go over all the details of the interrogation because you know them well. Let us notice how the accusation changed in the course of the journey from Caiaphas to Pilate. In the Jewish court it was blasphemy, but they knew Pilate would have none of that, so before him this is what they said. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. He stirth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. Luke twenty three, verses two and five. So now the accusation is sedition. Blasphemy Pilate could ignore, but sedition he could not. He examines Jesus, but is unconvinced that he is a rebel, or even dangerous. As we examine the motives of Caiaphas, so we need to look at Pilate. What a sadly strange man he is, a melancholy example of vacillation and instability. He was strong in the sense that he had power, he was weak in the sense that he was cruel, selfish, and cowardly. Power used in conjunction with those forces results almost certainly in disaster at last. Power may corrupt, but it corrupts much more those who are already polluted. Mark it well. First of all he blames the priests, and then he admits that he, after all, is responsible. He washes his hands and then says, Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee? He pronounces Jesus innocent and then hands him over to be crucified. And yet we have heard of this before. He is a man knowing what is right and doing what is wrong. Why is he so pitiably weak? Because there are things in his own life which tie his hands. There was the past guilt and the past failure. He had come under censure before. He has now to be extra careful not to invite it again. The circumstances have in them evident causes of personal danger for himself. After all, a man must think of himself sometimes. He wants to do right, but could not. It has happened since. Sometimes men know what is right and what they ought to do, but they dare not do it because to do so would reveal themselves as hypocrites. Sometimes men know they ought to speak out and uphold the truth, but they dare not, for to do so would show them to be uttering empty platitudes measured by their own life. Think of the agony of it. He knew why they had delivered the man from Galilee. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. He knew he ought to release him, but for reasons of self-interest and self-preservation, he dare not. Sometimes men have to do what is right and take the consequence to the vacillating man, Beset by fear, all things seem alterable, changeful, unfixed. So he parlayed, argued, debated, until the verdict of his own intellect was in turmoil. He had listened to the priests, he had listened to the people, he had listened to his own wife, and he had listened to Jesus. And then, with that cheerlessness of soul which descends upon those who conclude that nothing is certain, he asks, What is truth? It was not spoken in jest nor to gain information. It was spoken in skepticism and despair. Any man who violates his conscience is a man in tormented perplexity. His conviction was that Jesus was innocent. He knew the Pharisees were persecuting a guiltless man. He knew that the claim to royalty was nothing like sedition. The charge and the accusation had fallen to the ground. He was a Roman procurator. He saw it, but he tried to get rid of his clear duty. The accusers were vocal and insistent. They did not like the candor of the Roman governor about the suspected man. So, just as it was in the Sanhedrin trial, at the moment when the verdict was in the balance, they played their trump card. If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Pilate saw through their blackmail, but dare not resist it. You might think at first sight that Pilate was the judge and Jesus was the prisoner but the truth will reverse the positions. Jesus was the judge, and Pilate was the prisoner, a man for the ages to pity and for the world to despise, a man whose name and fortune have been memorialized in one short, sad sentence all down through the centuries. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. So he went out and pronounced sentence upon a man of unblemished life, who was born to proclaim the truth. Thus the Messiah was rejected.